Thanks, everyone, for letting us be here. It's great to, to see you and to worship with you. We, we worshiped in town one other time, and that was a few months ago when we were outside. So this is our, our family's first time in this building, and it's really wonderful to be here. Uh, this morning, we're going to be preaching and reading from Philippians 3, verses 1 to 11, uh, continuing through the series you guys have been doing in Philippians. I want to say a couple words before I start. Uh, when I was in sem- like so many people you probably know, maybe here in your church, when I was in seminary, Jimmy Egan was one of my professors. He was the director of a homiletics program that taught preaching to all the first-year seminary students. So I had him for that. I also had him for Acts and Paul, a class where we studied Paul's letters, in which I had to, re- I had to write a paper about what it meant to be a mature Christian from the book of Philippians. So this means that not only did Jimmy Egan teach me how to preach, he also taught me how to exegete Philippians. So if there's anything at all that you find objectionable or confusing in this sermon, I just want to invite you to go to Jimmy with that, take it up with him. I'm just kidding. Jimmy is one of my favorite professors, and I feel really um, excited and, and, and a tad nervous to be preaching this text to you guys. But Philippians 3, 1 to 11, before I have our reader read, this was a highly, highly anxious season uh, for some of the people in this church. This was a church that Paul planted, but Paul's not there right now. And in fact, you know, not only is Paul in prison, there's rumors that he's been ill, and there's maybe even a little bit fear that, you know, is is Paul going to make it? Is Paul going to be okay? And, and, and the attendant fear behind that is if Paul's not okay, are we going to be okay? So there's a lot of questions going on in what's going to happen in this church right now. At the same time, um, Paul's going to reference in these verses some people outside of the church, a different group of people, and he's going to use some colorful language to describe them. And I want to use some care about how we talk about that. But he's going to reference a group of people who are not members of the church, but outside of it, who had been troubling the Philippian people, who had been kind of getting in their ear and telling them things that maybe were a little new, maybe were a little confusing and a little bit scary. And so not only is this young church um, distant from the man who planted their church, they're also now inundated by voices that are telling them the things you are doing are wrong. And you actually can't be certain that God really loves you. And you can't actually trust in this peace that you think you have. And that's what Paul recognizes this is happening in the church as he's writing them this letter. And, and, and as you've probably seen so far as you've read through Philippians, so often Paul has been occur- encouraging them, giving them good news. You know, I, I want to comfort you. I want to I encourage you with these good things and Uh, And here, three chapters in, he decides, you know what? Uh, In conclusion, as we get leer to, I want to go ahead and encourage you again and give you even more good news. So we're going to hear good news for the anxious in these words. Uh, Philippians 3, 1 to 11. Caleb is reading for us. Let's do it, man. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God 
and glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray and ask God to be with us as we read his word this morning. Jesus, as we come to this text to hear your word preached, would you send us your Holy Spirit that we may receive your word? Would you soften our hearts, calm our anxieties, allay our fears? Would you, would you push us towards receiving uh, your gospel as we look at it this morning? In your name we pray, amen. So as we said, I, I'm here to do RUF at Emory University. Really, really excited about it. I love RUF, love college ministry. I got involved in RUF as an undergraduate at Auburn University. Are there any, are there any Auburn people in here by any chance? There are? Oh my goodness. I love you, and I want to go ahead and say I'm about to do something slightly offensive to the Auburn family, and that is I'm going to push back on something we hold very dear in Auburn. So Auburn University has what we call the Auburn Creed, and it's, this, it's, this, it's a creed that you say a lot. It's kind of in our bones if you're at Auburn. We, it's written on pamphlets and in classes, and it's etched in the stone on one of the buildings, and at orientation, you have to memorize the Auburn Creed. And it's really kind of, you know, it's, it's one of those things that gets you really excited, like, oh, I'm a part of this big thing. I'm a part of this big culture to wear the orange and blue and recite this creed. But there's a line in the creed that I, I kept thinking of as I was reading this passage, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to push on it a little bit with respect. But the, this line in the Auburn Creed says, I believe that this is a practical world, and I can only count on what I earn. Therefore, I believe in work, hard work. And you're supposed to kind of like, there's a beat right there. I'll say it again. It says, I believe that this is a practical world and I can only count on what I earn. Therefore, I believe in work, hard work. And we say that, we love it. And I remember, I remember this commercial where, this guy, where it's like showing all these different people saying it. And that one of the guys, when he gets to that line, he's like loading a truck and he's like, I believe in work. <sighs> hard work. And there's something about that as an 18-year-old. I'm like, oh, that is awesome. I believe in hard work. And you know what? Hard work is great. And I imagine there are a lot of people here who have put in some very hard work in their lives, who have worked very hard for things. And I, I think hard work is a wonderful gift. But 
I think a lot about the fact that the therefore is based on something a little strange. According to the creed, we are to believe in hard work and we're to, we're to work hard because we can only count on what we earn. And if you don't earn it, you can't count on it. So you need to work really, really hard, really, really hard to earn stuff to count on. There's a, a, a direct correlation between how hard you work and how much confidence you can have in yourself, in your life, in where you've been, in what you've accomplished, and in where you are going. That there's a, like, the harder you work, the more confidence you can have. And if you are a, a human being, <laughs> you will find that so often that just doesn't happen that our work doesn't always correlate to success, and success doesn't always correlate to peace. And we can't draw this line from, I'm going to work hard, so I'm going to be okay, and I'm going to have confident, confidence, and I'm going to be at peace. I'm going to be at peace, and I'm going to have rest because of how much work I've done. We find that that's not always true in our lives. But that's what these outsiders are telling the Philippians is true. Hey, guys, y'all, Paul planted this church. We've heard that you're taking communion and you're celebrating and you're rejoicing and, you know, you're, you're growing in maturity and hope. Um, but we're here to tell you, you need to double check and make sure you've actually worked hard enough to earn it. Uh, because if you haven't, then God's going to be very displeased in your rejoicing and this peace you think you're supposed to have is false. And you know, what, you know what this means for the Philippians? They reacted like all of us would react. Oh my goodness, maybe they're right. Maybe I haven't worked hard enough to earn this rest which Paul is asking me to live into. That creates anxiety. And by anxiety, I mean a spiritual a physical, but also a spiritual restlessness. A spiritual restlessness that somehow you being okay, you being at rest, is still just around the corner. It's still just over that next hill. And anxiety is the restlessness to get there and make sure you do it rightly so that you can attain to that rest. And this anxiety is bubbling up in this church. And Paul knows it. And you know what Paul wants to do? As he, 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 he does this sort of like really brilliant uh, historical theology here and, and, and really gives us the doctrine of justification by faith alone and union with Christ. He does that in these verses, and that's what we're going to look at. But here's what I really want you to hear. He tells us, he tells the Philippians, and therefore the Holy Spirit tells us, this, the beauty of justification in order that we might find rest. Not just physical rest, though it is related, but also a spiritual rest. Paul wants to free us from the anxiety that being okay with ourselves and being okay with God is right over the next hill. He wants to free us of the anxiety of resting in that and rather call us into a rest that's not something we are going to earn, but that we can count on even though we didn't earn it. Paul is going to talk about what it means to, to, to find righteousness through faith in order that we might rest in Jesus. And so that's what we're going to hear today. Paul wants us to rest in Jesus. 
Paul wants us to rest in the embrace of God, to find rest there, to turn to rest there, to stay at rest there. And he ties this rest in with rejoicing. Look at the very first verse. He says, rejoice. Finally, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It's actually safe for you to be a joyful person. It's safe for you to enjoy the days that you have because you have a spiritual, very real rest with God. That's what Paul wants us to hear, and that's what I want us to remind each other of this morning. So let's break this down. Two things that I want to look at uh, that Paul pulls out for us that cause us to rest in Jesus is this. Uh, The first is that our righteousness is not enough to give us rest. And the second thing is that uh, true righteousness, the righteousness that actually matters, the only righteousness worth having, grows out of resting in Jesus. So our righteousness is not enough, but Jesus is more than enough. And that's what we're going to look at today. Uh, Read with me verses 4 through 7. Paul says this. Um, well, I'm going to go back to two. You know, Paul, verse two, Paul says, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. He's saying, look out for those. I'm talking about those people that are telling you you're not working hard enough to be at peace. Uh, Paul says this, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. And then there's there's like a long hyphen, and then Paul says this, and this is amazing. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, if anyone thinks they've actually done the work to get over that hill to earn that rest, if anyone thinks they've, they've put in work, hard work, to have something to count on, I totally have. And then he lists it off. Uh, I have more. I've, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Like, demographically, he's checking all the boxes. You know, the the sort of intangible, like the things that you can't actually control, where you're born, your pedigree. He's like, I I have all that. I was was born right where I needed to be. But it goes deeper. Uh, uh, A Hebrew of Hebrews. And then he goes on, as to the law, a Pharisee. So not only was I born in all the right ways, I'm doing all the right stuff. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. That's the church of Christ. Like, like I've done all the right stuff, and I've done it with crazy amounts of zeal. As to righteousness under the law, as into like to the jot and tittle of all the things that you can do in the law, I'm blameless. I haven't actually, as far as I know, or could be held up in court, uh, broken any of these rules. Paul says. He's like, I've got the pedigree. I have the behaviors, and I have the heart. If anyone can climb over that hill and get rest, uh, according to every structure that religions have told us in the world, Paul's like, I I got it. I can do it. But guess what? Verse 7, I count all of that as loss for the sake of Christ. Paul says, I count all of that as loss. I I, I hereby delete all of that from my resume. I'm divesting myself of all of the virtues in which I could put my confidence in. 
Paul is saying to these people, um, church, these outsiders are telling you that you're not doing enough to be at peace with God. And we can't miss this. The reason those voices probably hit hard is because I imagine we have internal voices that tell us that too. You're not doing enough. You're not enough yet. You haven't done enough yet to be at peace. This voice is telling us, the voice is telling them in their hearts. And so when these outsiders say it, they're like, oh, wow, man, maybe they're right. Because I know that if you have to do all the right stuff to be at peace, then there's no way I can be at peace because I just can't do all the right stuff. And Paul is saying, I know this is happening in your heart. Guess what? As far as these people are concerned, I've done all the right stuff, but I'm not going to put my hope in those things. I'm going to delete them. I'm going to divest myself of them. Because my righteousness is not actually enough to give me peace. Paul says all those good things are empty. They don't give me peace. They don't make me okay with God as good as they are. Like they, they, in an eternal sense, they just don't really mean very much. And Paul's not saying that good works, things like achievement, intelligence, also things like moral integrity and, uh, and religious perseverance. He's not saying these are bad things, only that they are bad masters. They're not bad things. Righteousness? zeal. Like, Paul's saying these aren't bad things, but, they're, but what they are is they are bad masters. They are bad hopes. They are shakable ground. They are shifting sands. They're fickle lords. And if you put your hope in these things, they're going to betray you because I can put my hope in them and all they do is betray me. Because when you put your hope in your own righteousness, what you're actually doing is putting, what you, you feel like you're putting your hope in your righteousness, what you're really doing is you're putting your hope in your own willpower. You're actually resting in your ability to constantly desire and behave good things. But if you've ever stood in front of an open refrigerator in the middle of the night asking it to provide a new and exciting snack for you, even though you've already had dinner, and we'll have breakfast in an hour. Like, you know that your willpower is, you know, it's, it's not always the strongest thing. Sometimes it holds out. Sometimes your willpower is great, and you're tempted to sin, but you don't. But let's be honest. Sometimes, like, just being tempted to sin makes us feel as guilty as if we had sinned in general. If we put our hope in our willpower, we're, we're just going to frustrate ourselves. And even when our willpower holds up, Paul is reminding us, those good things, the ability to do right and be right all the time, that's actually not enough to give you peace. You can earn it, but you, you actually can't count on it. And what's sort of weird is like it, it, Paul's asking people to let go of these good things because they're holding these good things and they're making them their hope. And he's saying, I, I want to gently but lovingly peel your fingers off these things you're grasping onto this desire to earn God's favor because it's, it's robbing you of your ability to actually enjoy God. Your righteousness and your ability to create righteousness is just not going to ultimately give you real rest. When I was in high school, uh, I was a youth group kid Shout out to my youth group kids is the best. And I, I, like, I loved going to youth camps and my youth retreats. And I really loved my youth minister, Seth. 
Um, I still wear chacos to this day because I remember seeing Seth wear chacos and thinking, that dude is cool. I want shoes like him. So I got them on eBay. Uh, but I can remember, like, I, not because my pastors were telling me to do this, but I, I just, because it, it sort of wo- it was welling up out of my heart as a kid, as a, as a young adult, as a young man who's beginning to learn the faith, I would just constantly find myself in, the, in these long, quiet times of prayer feeling like uh, this is the year I stop sinning. This is the year I stop doing that or that. This is the year I start doing this. And you know what this really turned into? I would have like 10 minutes carved out for my quiet time, and the first seven minutes of every quiet time was me apologizing to God for not having a quiet time the day before. You know what I mean? And in the back of my mind is this thought like, oh, I need to ask God for help with these things going on in my life. I want to, I want to glorify him for his goodness, all, all this stuff. But, but I feel like I can't actually get around to saying that to God until I have gotten through the, sorry, I didn't have a quiet time yesterday. Sorry, I didn't have a quiet time yesterday before. I'm sorry I did that thing again. I'm sorry I said that thing again. I'm sorry I lied to my mom. I'm sorry I was mean. Like, I feel like I, every time I went before God, I had a litany of things to apologize before I felt actually comfortable coming to his table. And you know what that meant? That meant I started like putting off times of prayer because the receipts just got too long. And I would think, oh, I should really spend some time praying today, but you know, I've got way too many things to apologize to God before, before I can actually ask for help for this thing. I tell you that as like that little 16-year-old George sort of cycle has just carried through my life, and, and I constantly wrestle with it. And as I work with college students, I find that they wrestle with it all the time too. And that is the constant thinking that rest with God is on the other side of me earning God's favor constantly. That rest is something I sort of earn. Uh, that rest is sort of the reward for my righteousness. Spiritual rest. The ability to know that God is okay with me and that I'm okay with God. That he has me. That I can actually talk to him about things. That that sort of rest, the ability to just rest in that. That that's the reward for my righteousness. And Paul is telling us, your righteousness is not enough for that. Because rest is not the reward for your righteousness. Righteous, the, the only righteousness worth having is actually the fruit of resting in Jesus. Our righteousness is not enough to give us peace, to give us rest. But the second thing that Paul wants to know is the only real righteousness worth having. In fact, the only true righteousness that you can have is just the fruit of resting in Jesus' righteousness. Look with me in verse 8, and we'll just read this to the end. Paul had just said, all this good stuff I've done, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. And then he says, indeed, I count everything as loss. He's not just saying I I divest myself of my sin. He's also saying I divest myself of my virtue. Like I'm going to count everything that I could hang my hat on as loss because of this, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Let's pause there for a minute. He doesn't just say knowing Christ Jesus' uh, divine identity. He doesn't just, just say knowing the ins and outs of the gospel, knowing the, the, the verses that explain who Jesus is. 
all these things are good, but he just stops with the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, of knowing Him. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. It's for Him that I just don't, that I, that I delete all this stuff from my resume, and I count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in Him. To not be found on the top of a mountain with a stellar resume, but to just be found down in Jesus and nowhere else. That's where Paul wants to be found. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but having a righteousness which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that that depends on faith. That I may know Him and the power of His resurrection that I may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, because his death leads to resurrection. Paul is saying, I'm willing to put away hoping and trying to find rest as a reward for being a righteous person all the time, because there is nothing sweeter, nothing more comforting nothing more consoling, nothing that roots me more, nothing that gives me a sense of purpose more, nothing that comforts or acknowledges my worth and also respects my, my finitude as much as being united to Jesus. There is no sweeter place to be found and no sweeter resume to have than just being found in Him. And Paul is saying that, uh, that he wants us to take our gaze off of just being separated from sinfulness and rather put our gaze simply on being united to our loving, embracing Jesus. The Jesus uh, that Paul proclaims, God the Father's Son, the God-man, was fully righteous in ways we can't comprehend. And he invites us not just into his favor through the passage of us becoming righteous, he actually invites us into his righteousness. Paul is saying, this is the only really righteousness worth having. It's not the one you've earned yourself. It's the one you receive as a fruit of just resting in Jesus and His righteousness. And Paul's going to actually give us a vision then for what it means to be righteous, to follow Jesus, to follow God's law, to, to grow, to, to have moral and religious integrity. Uh, and what it is, is, is righteousness is learning how to love our neighbors well, how to love God with all our hearts and also how to love our neighbors well. Um, and Paul is saying, righteousness is for that. The, the work, hard work of loving your neighbors well is the work of loving your neighbors. It is not the work of earning God's favor. But actually learning how to grow in your love for God and love for others is the fruit of just going ahead and resting in Jesus' love for you now. And Paul is saying to the Philippians, and I hope the Holy Spirit is saying to us now, Christian, you have that. 
you can rest now. Yeah, these people are telling you you're not doing enough and your heart is confirming. Yeah, you know what? You couldn't, you couldn't do everything they were asking you to. And they're right. You mess up a lot of stuff. Like Paul's saying, it's not untrue that you're imperfect. What's, what's untrue is that you have to make yourself perfect to finally be at rest with God. To quote Zach Eswine, um, God never asked you to repent of being imperfect, but he does ask you to repent of trying to be to leave that game of, of building your resume, of working in order to earn something that you can rest in and nothing else, to leave that behind and actually find your rest in the finished work of Jesus. Paul's saying, like, it's, not, only is it, is it, is it, not only am I okay with telling you this again, he says, I love this word, it's a safeguard for you, he says in verse 1. It's actually safe for me to tell you. I want you to know that it is safe to rest in Jesus. You're not going to accidentally lose his favor because you sinned again. If you're resting in Jesus, you're not going to, to, to like suddenly accidentally not be one of God's children anymore. Paul's saying it's actually safe for you to rest in Christ Jesus' finished work for you. That's the only really righteousness that matters. So rest. Um, let me close with this. Uh, Paul ties in the idea of resting with rejoicing. He, he mentions, therefore rejoice at the beginning, and then he talks about finding rest in Christ and not in your own righteousness. And I think that's because we usually don't feel safe rejoicing unless we can be at rest. We're usually not ready to raise our voice and sing songs and dance and throw parties and eat gobs and gobs of popcorn like with our friends and just celebrate the day unless we know that it's actually safe to rest and rejoice. And Paul is saying, I want you to rejoice because you can. Because you have rest. And I'll close with this image. It reminds me of uh, Malachi chapter 4. The last book in the Old Testament, the prophet says that... uh, For those who fear the name of the Lord, one day the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. And it says to God's people, and you will go forth leaping like calves from a stall. And I love that image so much because leaping like calves from a stall is referencing a newborn baby cow. It it was just born. It's it's a brand new, and it comes leaping. Why is it leaping? Because it's energized and it doesn't know how to walk yet. So it's kind of awkwardly jumping around as it it bursts into new life from the stall. And, and, And the prophet is saying, when the sun of righteousness rises upon you, not from within you, when righteousness comes upon you and is given to you in Christ, you will, will go forth like this, awkwardly, newly joyful. It's safe for this little baby cow to jump around uh, because it's, you know, the shepherd is there, the family is there, and it's learning how to dance on its little young feet, and it's excited, and it doesn't know what it's doing. And Paul is saying to the Philippians, you're young, that's great. Be awkwardly joyful because it's okay. It's safe for you. Leap forward like a calf from the stall. 
Rejoice because you have real rest. So when you feel yourself going down that road of anxiety, remember these words. That your rest is in Jesus and your righteousness is his. His righteousness is yours. Comfort yourself there. When you gather strength to do hard things, gather it from the confidence that you belong to a merciful Jesus who knows your frame. When you fail to love your neighbor well or honor God, don't beat yourself up. Neither fight harder to prove yourself to you or other people or to God, but keep moving forward knowing that your resume does not control your peace. Jesus, to whom you belong, gives you his peace always. He holds you in his arms. Find yourself by being found in him, and there is real rest. Okay, that's it. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for uh, the gift of forgiveness and the gift of your righteousness that we don't have to build ourselves. Teach us, uh, disciple us, mentor us into knowing what it looks like to rest in you and the hard days of our lives, to find the rest that you give freely and to awkwardly be joyful as we step into it. In your heavenly name we pray, amen.